Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Forged in the final moments of exploding neutron stars, gold has the best origin story of any asset. To some, gold's scarcity and history make it the only real form of money. To others, it's just a shiny rock. Is there a nugget of truth in both arguments? And more importantly, does gold have a role to play in our portfolios? And in today's dumb question of the week, why did we abandon the gold standard? Okay, let's get into it. So Robin, every so often we come to talk about topics in investing that are particularly divisive. Could be house prices, often cryptocurrency, but another one is gold. And that is what we're going to talk about today. So why is gold one of those things that gets people so emotional? I think for some people, it's seen as something which is very reliable. And people generally who love gold are the ones which distrust government. Just put it that way. I don't want to upset people (laughs) straight away. (laughs) Maybe we can get some gold bugs on board and make our way through the arguments in a kind of rational way. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to attract the more paranoid members of society. And I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. It's just kind of like a fact, isn't it? That, Like you say, if you distrust government and think we're standing on a house of cards with fiat money, then yeah, you like gold. But why is gold valuable? Why has it always been seen as valuable? Well, it's certainly been seen as valuable for a very, very long time. I mean, you don't have to look far in the archaeological record to see people hoarding gold and using it as a means of exchange. Now, one obvious thing is that it's shiny, right? Gold. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my wife loves its shine. Goodness me. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't tarnish as well. So it's got a low reactivity. So there are certain chemical properties which it's got, which ensure that, you know, it's attractive to humans. It's got that kind of spectrum, which is similar to the sun. So, you know, people who worship the sun and there have been sun worshipping cults in the past. If I worship anything, though, it is the sun. I love the sun. (laughs) (laughs) genuinely (laughs) but it has the kind of same luster as the sun the same spectrum that kind of warm glow so i think it's just naturally alluring because of its physical properties yeah it's like when you see babies like we're instinctively designed to love a baby's face even like an animal baby's face they just look so cute (laughs) and gold has that kind of property doesn't it but it has other properties like because it's elemental if you chop it up into bits each bit is interchangeable with another and you can just melt it down from one form to another, and it's completely fungible. So that's one of the qualities of money, which is that it should be interchangeable. You know, one bar of gold, assuming its purity is the same, is just the same as another bar of gold. Whereas if you're using something else as a means of exchange, it's not interchangeable. For example, some people thought about using land. But of course, if you've got a field in Shropshire, and a patch of land on the side of a mountain, those are very different, even though they've got the same area. Whereas two bars of gold, same thing. And also you mentioned that it doesn't tend to react with other elements, which I guess when it comes to money and a store of value is a pretty important thing. Yeah, for example, if you've got iron, it's going to rust. And that's no good at all. And even silver does, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It does react. Yeah. And copper. But gold's kind of special because it keeps its shine, as it were. How many cheesy metaphors can we get into this? But I guess the main thing that people reference is that there's not that much gold in the world. And that is what you want with money. It's a limited supply. Or at least it's really hard to get more of it. That's true. Certainly at the moment, if we could mine asteroids, then that might change the supply story very quickly. But at the moment, certainly, if you're digging it out of the Earth's crust, it's going to be a limited supply forever. 
But even mining asteroids is presumably an expensive endeavour. It certainly is now. And that's going to be the case for a long time to come. So I think, yeah, it's going to stay rare for a long period of time. But of course, scarcity doesn't mean something's valuable. It has to have desirability as well as scarcity. And I think that's one of the things about gold. It is desirable. And many cultures love gold. So, for example, in Indian culture, if you're getting married, you have to kind of get a certain amount of gold together because it's a critical part of the wedding. And the one other property that a lot of people mention is that it's very malleable. So if you're of a slightly paranoid disposition and think you might have to flee the country at some point with a load of gold in your pocket, it can be stretched and squashed and squeezed relatively easily. And conductivity. So one of the actual practical uses of gold is that it's got very high conductivity, which means it can conduct electricity very efficiently. So if you use very fancy connectors in your stereo, it's going to have gold in there somewhere. I've read something as well that that's one reason we use it for jewellery is that it warms up to body temperature super quickly. Is that to do with the same conductivity property? Well, that's thermal conductivity, not electrical conductivity. But yeah, I mean, it has a high thermal conductivity, but that's true of many metals. Okay, that's getting cut then. (laughs) (laughs) So those are some of the reasons why gold is valuable and might continue to be valuable. But how do we actually value it? Because it's not a thing that's generating cash flows. In fact, the opposite, right? We have to pay to store it in a safe or a bank vault somewhere. So how does anyone say, well, what is this worth other than what someone's willing to pay for it? The thing to understand about commodities is that they're useful and or desirable, right? So gold falls into the desirable camp. And if something's useful or desirable, then its price will roughly keep in line with inflation. And a simple thought experiment will make that clear. If you imagine that, let's say, gold grew in value 1% faster than inflation forever, well, at a certain point, its price is just going to become unreachable for everyone. So, you know, you could own a nanogram of gold. I mean, that's never going to work. So over the long term, what you'd expect is that everything keeps up with inflation. So, for example, if you look at the price of iron ore since 1900, it's actually grown a little bit above CPI inflation over that period of time, whereas copper has lagged a little bit below. The real loser since 1900 has been aluminium, which has kind of way lagged inflation. What do you think is the most desirable of the commodities? Is it pork bellies? (laughs) Well, for me, it would be cheesy wadsits. You know, I mean, that should be a real inflation hedge. That's running way ahead of inflation right now, Roman. But it's golden, you know, it's golden as well as tasty. (laughs) It has the allure of the sun, doesn't it, as well? (laughs) Yeah, you can't eat gold. Remember that. You can actually. In some like stupid restaurants, they do gold shavings on steaks. But it has no nutritional value at all. I mean, it's completely inert. It's just conspicuous consumption though, isn't it? Oh, literally. That's one value of gold. (laughs) You can show it off and people know, oh, he's got money. He's just eaten gold. (laughs) Lustrous consumption. That's what they should call it. Okay, so in the long term, gold should more or less stay in line with inflation. But what about in the short term? What drives the price of gold? Because I know it is actually a very volatile asset. So we have a simple gold model, which we provide for the members in Pensioncraft, which has three ingredients. CPI inflation, which I mentioned. Gold roughly keeps in line with CPI over the long term. But then added to that, you've got two other factors which are really important. Any commodities priced in dollars at the moment. And if that's the case, then a high gold price is like a weak dollar price. In other words, when you price it in dollars, its price would go up if the dollar devalues. So if you've got gold, you want the dollar to weaken. Yeah, or any commodity for that matter. So that's a kind of obvious thing. It's priced in dollars. 
And then the final one, which is kind of interesting, is to do with interest rates. And obviously, I like bonds. And if interest rates are high, real interest rates, when you subtract inflation, gold is a wasting asset. It doesn't generate cash flows. So if you can buy a treasury, which generates a real return of, say, I don't know, 4%, why would you ever own gold? Because it's not going to generate an income. It's riskier and more volatile than a treasury, usually, unless it's really long duration. So it just becomes less shiny if treasuries are generating a high revenue. So that sounds like at the moment there are forces pulling against the value of gold. So you've got a stronger dollar over the last year, even though it's weakening a bit now, and interest rates have been rising, obviously. That's exactly right. Even real interest rates? I don't know. We've got high inflation. So real interest rates have also been rising very rapidly. That's why Link has sold off so much. So if you look at the current fair value... According to our model, gold's undervalued by around 6%. So it's pretty close to its fair value. How does your model look historically? Is it quite predictive? So this isn't a predictive model. This is just a fair value model, which tells you whether the price is currently in line with its fundamentals. And historically, it's traced it pretty closely. You know, the two lines are very close to each other. There was a massive divergence, and that was from around 2021 to 2022. That was when there was a massive rally in risky assets, but not a massive rally in gold. At that point, remember, the dollar strengthened massively as the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates faster than everyone else. And the fundamental price got much higher than the real price of gold. Oh, so it looked like gold was undervalued? Hugely undervalued, by around 10 15%. And has that corrected now because the fundamental value, according to your model, has come down or because gold's gone up? Its fundamentals have come down. So it's, the, <laughs> okay. the model snapped back Don't trade line. based on the model. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a trading model. It just tells, you know, given fundamentals, where should it be? But the pandemic made everything look crazy, right? And is this just another example of that? The thing is that if equities giving you crazily high returns, it immediately makes gold less attractive. You know, why would you buy gold if it's a hugely risk-on environment? So I think that was pretty much a risk premium. And the model doesn't incorporate that. It's interesting because often you hear what really drives gold in the short term is fear and uncertainty. Like if people are scared, then we run to the thing that's had value for 5,000 years or whatever. But that didn't really play out in COVID, which was a scary time. Yeah, and I think that's because the sell-off during COVID was so short-lived And the Fed turned things around so quickly by buying risky assets, junk bond funds, you know, all sorts of things that you wouldn't have expected the Fed to buy. So I think that kind of sell-off was just too short for gold to shine. Do you think that's a fair characterization, though, that if we have some massive scary event, whether it's a natural disaster or a big war or another financial crisis, that gold is in that situation what people look to? Yes, assuming that certain things are in place, I think it's got to be seen as a protracted crisis. And I think equity has to sell off a lot before people turn to gold. Because people now know that, you know, the equity risk premium is very high, much higher than it is for gold. So it takes a big hurdle to make people go into gold, except for the people who, you know, always buy it because they're gold bugs. And you've talked about how gold over the long term tracks inflation. And people do hold it up as an inflation hedge. But I don't know, is it really a reliable inflation hedge? Sometimes the stats kind of don't show that it is. Well, again, I did a kind of facetious graph in a video about gold I did in 2021, where I compared it with other commodities. 
And if you look at the UK's history of inflation, and we've got oodles of data going back to just after the Second World War, I actually showed that bread and cheese were a better inflation hedge than gold. Basically, your cheesy watts then. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, though, sugar, milk, flour and eggs, a complete disaster. They didn't work. So there was deflation in those commodities over that very long period. I think in the short term, gold does not perform as a reliable inflation hedge, right? You can't say, oh, we're going to get a year or two of high inflation, therefore gold should definitely do well. Yeah, I think those other drivers are much more important. The strength of the dollar, the value of real interest rates are much more important when it comes to looking at the price of gold. And certainly over the very short term, it would be fear. If there's a lot of fear, then yeah, people buy gold. And if you look back to 2008, essentially cash, gold and treasuries were the only things which would have saved your bacon at that time. So what is the ideal time for a gold investor then? in terms of a macro environment. So is it presumably, from what you've said, when interest rates are low, presumably because growth is weak, and inflation is high? So that's kind of a nightmare scenario, isn't it? Is that what people call stagflation? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of situation. So stagflation, gold is pretty much the only asset which does well, because cash isn't going to do well because of high inflation. Equity is not going to do well because margins are being eroded. Bonds don't do well during periods of high inflation. So really gold's the only show in town when it comes to that kind of environment. Yeah, I heard that there's an old Wall Street adage, which is put 10% of your portfolio in gold and hope it doesn't go up. Like it's good as an insurance policy, but if your gold's doing well, maybe the world's not looking so good. Yeah, we used to call it an Uzi hedge, where the only hedge was to uh, get some heavy weaponry. But is that genuinely the right way to think of gold in a portfolio? Is it like insurance? It is an uncorrelated asset in the sense that it doesn't have a very high correlation with equity or with bonds, at least not over the long term. Over the short term, it can correlate with risky assets for short periods of time. It does have this kind of weirdly floppy correlation. But yeah, certainly over the very long periods of time, it is uncorrelated. So it has that attractive property. But you don't have to buy gold directly. There is another way to get exposure. And that's what Warren Buffett did, in fact which is not to buy gold, but to buy gold mining companies, which are also exposed to the price of gold. They certainly have a share price which is sensitive to the price of gold, but they generate an income and which you would expect to have a bigger risk premium over the long term. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. But if equity markets are going to tank, these gold mining companies' stocks will also tank. Yeah, I don't think it provides the same kind of hedge that you get from gold, does it? Because, yeah, in the terrible scenario where everything's going wrong, they're going to sell off, presumably. I would put that in my equity risk bucket rather than in my super defensive part of my portfolio. Yeah, I agree. I think some of the hedge argument goes away and, you know, it doesn't really work in that kind of environment. And also you have all the risks that are associated with equity, right? Like the company could get into financial trouble through leverage or fraud, like... It's not just a bet on a lump of metal. That's right. But I think if you do want to build a portfolio that does well based on any kind of macroeconomic environment, so something like an all-weather portfolio, you know, you should certainly consider including gold in it. And if you do back tests of these strategies, then adding gold has in the past eased some of the losses when equities fallen a lot and bonds have fallen as well. And you can see that over the last inflationary shock period. Gold didn't do incredibly well, but it certainly held its value. It didn't fall. So it did the job. It did its job of being uncorrelated during a crisis and when people were scared. 
So I think when it comes to looking at our portfolio and what role gold might play, on its own, gold is a terrible asset, I think. It's really volatile. I don't know, what's the volatility of gold? So that's just under 20%. And if you compare that with the S&P 500, that's around 12%. And treasuries, 10-year treasuries would be around, I don't know, 5%. Yeah, so it's really volatile. And it has pretty substandard returns, which can go on for a long time. So gold has been in a real drawdown since the 80s. Is that right? Yeah, so over 40 years. And it hasn't reached that peak for that period of time. So it peaked in 1980. And in real terms, it's below that level now. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Like You wouldn't typically consider any other asset that had those properties. And if you look at the returns on a decade-by-decade basis, for example, in the 1990s, the real return of gold was over minus 5% per year. That's a hell of a drawdown. And gold has a really high ulcer index, if you look at it. Which means that it has long periods of drawdown, which are usually quite deep. That's what the ulcer index tells you. So it sounds like I'm saying, why would we ever buy gold? And if you were just buying one asset, gold would be about the worst thing you could buy, right? Other than something which just always loses money. But maybe gold is a little bit like onions. <laughs> so we've often <laughs> talked in the past about how building a portfolio is kind of like a recipe, right? And it's mixing assets in the right formula, which tastes good. And you wouldn't just eat an onion on its own unless you were insane. <laughs> but it's in a little amount in a recipe, it can be good. Or quite large amounts. Onion soup, delicious. But you're right. I think the kind of weird result of back tests, and if you go to portfolio charts, they're very into gold as a kind of ingredient into a portfolio. In fact, they've created their own portfolio, which is called the Golden Butterfly. I did a video about this. But they show that with the back tests, if you go all the way back to 1970, which is as far as you can go with gold, as we'll come on to, then adding gold has certainly made the overall returns of a portfolio better. And it's made it less crashy, so less risky. Yeah, there's a great article they have, Three Secret Ingredients of the Most Efficient Portfolios. And what they're looking at is the ulcer index on one hand, so portfolios that aren't going to be super crashy. And the return they're targeting is actually something they're referring to as the baseline return, which is the 15th percentile for any 15-year period. Now, what does that mean? It basically means they're looking at almost the worst case scenarios for any portfolio and trying to avoid them. So this article is saying if you want to sleep well at night with a low ulcer index and have a portfolio that does well even in the worst case scenarios, the most efficient portfolios at achieving those goals always include some element of gold alongside your equities and your bonds. And this golden butterfly portfolio that I was talking about, it has five equal allocations, one of which is gold. And the back tests are convincing. Now, I'd have certain qualms about the back tests, and certainly there was an incredible period for gold in the early 1970s when it just had spectacular, mind-blowing returns. And that was the era when Bretton Woods, as it was called, ended, and gold was allowed to free float, right, on the market for the first time in almost 100 years, I think. So (laughs) it kind of went through this period of price discovery and shot up. Now, we can only come off the Bretton Woods system once. Yeah. So I think that entire decade is slightly unreliable when it comes to working out whether gold's a good inflation hedge, because it also coincided with a period of very high inflation. But it is going to contaminate, I think, the back tests forever until we look through this environment, which we've got right now, which is another high inflation environment, but not a super high inflation environment. Yeah. So to give some sense of the scale there in the 70s, 
The real gold price quadrupled between 1971 and 1974. And that was just after Nixon ended the convertibility of dollars into gold. Did then cool off a bit and fall 38% over the next two years. So it was extremely volatile. But yeah, like you say, a massive bull market for gold at the time, which makes it look good in the back tests. My dad timed his gold purchases absolutely perfectly. And he hid the gold somewhere in the house. And I was always looking for it and never found it. So if you live in Lower Broad Heath. (laughs) Buried in some garden somewhere. (laughs) There's treasure. But I think I do still think there's value in these portfolio charts ideas that a small amount of gold is a kind of insurance premium that we've talked about and lowers the risk of your worst case scenarios. But I guess that then raises the question of, well, how much gold? How much is too much gold? I think if you look at that golden butterfly portfolio, that's got 20%. And that, I think, is far too much. I might consider something like 10%. But, you know, certain people think that it's worthwhile having that in order to be meaningful. So during these periods when you get a very high inflation, you know, it does come into its own. I mean, Ray Dalio includes a huge amount of gold in his all-weather portfolio, which is meant to survive and thrive in any economic situation. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I assume he knows what he's talking about. So, (laughs) Do you, Roman? Do you assume that? Not really. (laughs) But if he ever wants to come on the podcast, he's very welcome. But I have spoken to people who've actually implemented this portfolio here in the UK. So people do believe it. And, you know, there will be underperformance probably over the long term because of the fact that gold has got a lower return than equity, say. But there's definitely going to be underperformance, you know, if we're in the same situation we've been in since World War II, right, of relative stability and economic growth. But it depends what you mean by performance. They're targeting a kind of risk-adjusted performance that is never going to have a spectacular fall, right? Because the thing is, if you just want pure performance without worrying about risk, you just hold 100% equities or even lever it up further. But you could have, you know, a 90% drawdown, right? If you get the Great Depression. Yeah. And, you know, my core portfolio is now 100% equity for that very reason. And I think, you know, I'm willing to suffer the drawdowns and not do anything about it. And that's just something I have to live with. But if you're not willing to do that, or you're investing for a shorter period of time, say a decade or less, then certainly these strategies are interesting. Well, here's what I think then, for what it's worth. If you're young or don't have much money to invest, you probably are best focused on growth, right? So you're going to be heavily in equities, trying to grow your wealth. If you're in a situation where you've built up a decent amount of wealth and your mindset is switching to wealth preservation, then that's when you're looking at Hmm, maybe I should have a little bit of gold, right? In case the worst happens. Do you not think? It's those two different mindsets. No, I think that's pretty accurate. And I think that, you know, if I do speak to people who are very young, talking about bonds, talking about gold is probably a waste of time. You know, they're not usually interested in those anyway. Whereas nowadays, they're probably more interested in talking about crypto. But after the sell-offs in crypto, they're willing to admit that crypto should be a smaller percentage of their portfolio. Yeah, because for a long time, actually, people were kind of talking about Bitcoin as digital, digital gold. gold, which is a bit strange, <laughs> isn't it? It wasn't really, didn't have the 5,000 year history and all that. I mean, is gold the physical Bitcoin, would you say? Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> it is a wasting asset, just like cryptocurrency. It doesn't generate a set of cash flows. But its desirability, I think, is very long lasting, whereas the desirability of things like Bitcoin, I think, will probably wane over time. That's my belief. But, you know, who knows? Who knows whether it's going to kind of substitute? 
I think many people said that gold underperformed in 2021 because people were buying cryptocurrency as an alternative. Yeah, I heard that. As in, like, Bitcoin stole a bit of gold's lunch. I think that kind of narrative has been pretty convincingly destroyed now. Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin has to go into the speculative risky bit of your portfolio, right? Whereas gold probably sits in the more defensive side. Yeah, the fact that it crashed along with equity and that it's highly correlated with equity very clearly shows that it sits in the risky bucket of investments rather than the safe haven bucket, which gold does. So let's say that we do buy into the idea of having a bit of gold in our portfolio. I don't know, might be 10%, whatever. How's the best way to buy it? Because you see a lot of people which say you've got to buy the actual physical gold bullion and bury it in your garden, right? Otherwise, you know, you can't trust these ETF providers or whatever it is. Because you could buy it and store it yourself, like an actual gold bar if you've got enough money or some gold coins. Or I know you can buy some and then get someone else to store it in a proper vault for you, <laughs> like custody it for you. So you don't have to worry about getting robbed or having your garden dug up. <laughs> the gold depository. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those are incredible. If you ever get to visit one, it's quite exciting to see all of that gold in one place. I used to live with a guy who worked for Bullion Vault, which I know stores gold for a lot of people, which is an interesting company, I think. It's gold as a service, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I think some people actually like to have the physical gold or to wear it, you know, like sovereigns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that is quite risky. Obviously, I wouldn't wear them in downtown Holmer Green because, you know. Teddy will protect you. He wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think there's a distinction here? Does it matter if you hold gold yourself physically or if you buy an ETF that tracks the price of gold? Well, if you're very paranoid, I think people are willing to buy physical gold and kind of hide it around their house or put it into a safe because they kind of envision scenarios where society collapses. And in that kind of scenario, yeah, you'd need the physical gold. You wouldn't have to have some kind of certificate to get the gold, which you might not be able to make good on anyway if society's collapsed. So if we do have these kind of apocalyptic scenarios, then yeah, you want physical gold that's on your person or stored nearby. I mean, I guess I can see that argument if you live in a country where the risk of that seems quite real and you might have to flee the country for whatever reason. Then, yeah, you probably do want something you can pick up and go with. But I'd hope Britain has probably less than a 25% chance of that coming true <laughs> in the next few years. Well, you've just got to look at all the gold hoards that people dig up to realise that, you know, it has happened in the past. And people have, unfortunately, not been able to recover the hoard, which suggests that they had a bit of a sticky outcome. Because it's interesting with the ETFs that a lot of them say they are physically backed by gold, like they hold the gold that you have. It's not just done with derivatives. And I think some even say that it is convertible. You can go and ask for your bit of gold for a fee, I imagine. But yeah, in the worst case scenario, good luck getting to <laughs> Wall Street and getting your gold <laughs> back off them, right? But people call this paper gold because it's not actual physical gold. And usually that's a red flag that it's someone who also distrusts the government, likes cryptocurrency and so on. You know, it's one of the kind of catchphrases which people use. But personally, I definitely go for something which simply gives me exposure to it. So I'd go for the ETF. Sometimes they're also called ETCs, exchange traded commodities. That would be good enough for me. Oh man, Roman, you're going to be first against the wall in the revolution here. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to survive. No, I'd just starve, you know, because, you know, I'd, I'd have trusted all the institutions and the equity returns would be good. And you talk of institutions. I saw something quite interesting about central banks, which is that in 2022, central banks around the world bought the most gold 
on record, going all the way back to 1950. What's going on here? Why are all the central banks buying gold? Well, it's no accident that this was a period when we had big sanctions on Russia and it became pretty clear that the dollar could be used as a weapon. So if you've got your FX reserves stored in dollars, like, oh, for example, China, then if you fall foul of the US authorities, then all of your assets, or a big chunk of them, certainly the ones which are denominated in foreign currency, those could be confiscated. So I think central banks lost faith in the dollar particularly central banks, which aren't necessarily part of a government that's friendly to the US. And of course, there are some big ones, including Russia, of course, but also China. Because it's interesting if you look at the graph, which the FT published, since the late 80s, all the way up until the financial crisis, central banks were selling huge amounts of gold every year. I know Britain did it, right? Gordon Brown sold a large part of Britain's gold reserves and got a lot of stick for it because he did it basically at the lowest point (laughs) of the market. But anyway... (laughs) Since 2008, central banks have been buying a small amount of gold every year. And then in the last year, it's yeah, more than doubled from its trend. So yeah, it's a real thing. And it sort of makes me think, is this now heightened demand for gold going forward, which would obviously be bullish for its value? Yeah, I wouldn't underestimate the size of the purchases by central banks. They can buy a lot. And remember, if it's a country like China, if you've got five trillion in foreign reserves, then You've got a lot of cash which you can use to buy those things. But look, the reason why central banks didn't like gold during that period up to 2000 was because they saw other opportunities elsewhere. And if inflation was reasonable, then, you know, treasuries were a pretty good investment. Also, I saw many central banks starting to buy equity. So if you look at the Swiss central bank, that bought a lot of equity in its portfolio. And I think they had a fairly rough period in terms of volatility. Oh, yeah, they must have. And I know they had a bad time in the drawdown at the start of COVID. Yeah. And that must be very difficult to explain if you're the central bank, where you're seen to be a bastion of stability. Especially Switzerland. They should be all in gold. (laughs) Well, you'd be surprised. (laughs) Their attitude to risk is quite different to ours, I'd say. I know the Japanese central bank, we've talked about it before, they bought ETFs with equity, didn't they? Yeah. So I think central banks have certainly pushed the envelope in terms of what they see as a reasonable way to store their cash and their assets. But I think gold at the moment is fueled by worries about the dollar and its weaponization. So I think that's the cause of the big inflows over the last year or so. Be interesting to see if it continues, doesn't it? I imagine it will be lower in 2023, but who knows? If it goes higher again, then maybe this is a trend. We mentioned our gold model. If you want access to that and also our other trackers and also our community so that you can talk to us and to each other, then just go to our website, pensioncraft.com, to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week Why did we abandon? the gold standard. You hear a lot of people saying this, that, oh my goodness, that was when we really moved into the land of imaginary money. So let's start with, well, what is the gold standard or what was it? So I think the idea is very intuitive and seems very attractive on the face of it, which is that if you've got currency as a country, what you can say is, look, if you have one of these notes, you can exchange it for a certain amount of physical gold. So that's the idea. It's backed by something which is intrinsically valuable. Yeah. So in the United States, for a very long time, you could exchange $20.67 for an ounce of gold. And it's a troy ounce, not an ounce ounce. 
<laughs> I don't know the difference. I'm not into gold. <laughs> there is a slight difference. Okay. But that's right. You can get a certain amount of gold. So you'd literally go to the government and say, here's my cash. Give me the real gold money. Yeah, and people do this at the bank. You know, you could physically get gold if you wanted to. And in the early part of the 20th century, I think almost all the world's major economies were run on a gold standard. And if you want to learn more about this, there's a brilliant book by Liaquat Ahmed, which is called The Lords of Finance. And he describes how there was this group of bankers. They all knew each other because they were on a kind of equal social footing, you know, quite posh, quite rich. Some things never change, (laughs) do they? (laughs) The conspiracy theorists will love this. But they were talking about how to create stability. And of course, they were worried about a world war. And they just had World War One, And they thought gold would be a good way to establish this kind of monetary stability period. And it worked. It worked for a long time, you could say. Well, not that long, a few decades. (laughs) Yeah. And then the problems really started to surface. And that's why I think it'll be unsustainable to do this over the long term, because those problems get worse and worse over time. Okay, so let's go on to the downfall. What happened? I think it was around 1931 that the unravelling began. And actually, it began in England as so many problems start. (laughs) So let's imagine there's a panic. What are you going to do? Are you going to keep your physical currency or are you going to cash it in for gold? Paper or gold? (laughs) I'm going for the metal. No surprise, right? We are just excitable apes. And of course, when we're scared, we just do the thing which doesn't rationally make sense. So people went to the bank. The Bank of England. The Bank of England, and they exchanged their paper money for gold. But at a certain point, that's not going to work. Why? Is the bank going to run out of gold? Yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It wasn't backed. (laughs) So it's a bank run. Effectively, yeah. And so the first country to abandon the gold standard was Britain. So yeah, that was the first sort of crack in the dam of the gold standard then. But I think the US was what really changed the game, right? If people thought, okay, if England does this, then who's going to be next? So let's quote Roosevelt, who said, because of undermined confidence on the part of the public, there was a general rush by a large portion of our population to turn bank deposits into currency or gold. I mean, it was the mother of all bank runs, wasn't it, in the Great Depression? Yeah. And some people think that the Great Depression was actually exacerbated by the gold standard. I mean, I think that's quite clear, isn't it? The way you get out of a contractionary environment and prices falling is you kind of have to print more money and you can't you can't print gold. (laughs) You're limited in terms of what you can do, both in terms of the central bank. So after the Lehman bailouts that we had in 2008, which essentially stabilised the financial system and stopped the Great Depression, even though we had seven years until the economy really recovered in the US, it would have been much worse, I think, if the central bank hadn't been able to intervene with QE1 and then QE2 and so on. People romanticising the gold standard kind of just ignore the Great Depression. (laughs) It was the worst fiscal and monetary environment you could really imagine. Like people were eating cat food in the United States. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that kind of depression in such a rich country, at least what's a rich country today. And what's also interesting is the rate at which countries recovered from the Great Depression was very much related to how quickly they abandoned the gold standard with Sweden and France being a really nice counterexample to one another. So Sweden left gold in 1931, and it had a huge surge in its industrial production over the next five years, whereas France waited to 1936 
and its industrial production was way slower to recover. It took longer and it didn't recover as much. Because the world was in such a tough position back then, wasn't it? You think the Great Depression, but it wasn't just the Great Depression. I know that the British pound and the French franc and lots of other currencies were all kind of misaligned and it was having a huge impact on trade. There was all the war debts and the reparations around Germany. Commodity prices were collapsing. Banks were massively over leveraged. Like you had all these problems together. And then you got this bank run with people taking their dollar bills and pound notes and trying to convert them into physical gold. And so what did governments do? Well, they jacked up the interest rates to say, you know, keep your real money or your fake money, whichever way you want to look at it, because it's going to pay you some interest whereas gold won't. And, you know, what do you do when the economy is collapsing? Jacking up interest rates is about the worst thing you can yeah. do, right? So it was this perfect storm and it ended with the gold standard collapsing. But also think about what you have to do. If you've got two countries which are on the gold standard and they trade with one another and there's a trade imbalance, which there's always going to be, yeah. what does that mean? You have to take gold out of your vault, shift it across the world into somebody else's vault. It's so inefficient and a kind of crazy system. I mean, it is crazy to think about it. Like, why would we base our whole monetary system on this random metal from supernovas where the supply of it is just determined by how much we randomly find in the ground? Like, how is that the system? And if your economy is growing faster than the supply of gold, then you're going to have deflation. Yeah. So you have to have the same amount of money to buy the stuff which is there to buy. If there is an imbalance between the two, the supply of money and the growth of stuff to buy, and that's goods and services, remember, then you're going to have deflation. Yeah, because people always hark back to the gold standard and say, the problems we faced with inflation in the latter part of the 20th century, and maybe now, is because we printed money or whatever. And let's go back to the gold standard. That solved inflation. Well, yeah, maybe it solved inflation, but it created deflation, which is arguably far, far worse. So to just go back to the end of the gold standard in its sort of broadest sense, FDR in the US eventually told his advisors about his decision to leave the gold standard. And apparently in the room, they all exploded. So these were, I think, <laughs> economists who were just used to the idea, you know, gold is money. And the assistant secretary of the treasury resigned. And another of his advisors said that this would be the end of Western civilization. Now, Roman, was it? Was it the end of Western civilization? Nope. I think we're okay. We're <laughs> okay. Never believe what the economists tell you. No. Look, over this period of time, it's been an incredible run after the Second World War, for the US in particular. And unless they could grow their money supply in line with their economy, I don't think they could have achieved that. Because they sort of immediately at that point devalued the dollar, didn't they? In 1934, we mentioned that gold was priced by law in the US at $20.67 per, what was it, troy ounce, you said? <laughs> <laughs> and then like overnight, they jacked it up to $35 per ounce. It's a pretty massive devaluation. And as a result of that, there was a huge pickup in productivity in the US. And, you know, not many gold bugs mentioned that. So look, I think it's clear that eventually it was going to break down. And it was a crisis period in 1971 when it really did. Yeah. So after the like real gold standard ended in 1934, where every country was kind of pegging their currency to a arbitrary value of gold, then we had Bretton Woods, where I think the US was basically pegging its currency to gold still at this devalued price. And all the other currencies were priced in dollars, effectively. So it was like indirectly pegged to gold. Yeah, there was a fixed exchange rate. So the dollar was pegged to gold. 
and every other currency was pegged, well, major currency was pegged to the dollar. So effectively everything was pegged to gold. So it was a kind of bootleg gold standard that persisted until, what was it, 1971? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a bit fuzzy around that period to see when it exactly broke down. But Nixon announced in August 1971 that direct convertibility from dollars to gold would end. That was the real death knell. And that was just the beginning of this incredible rally in the value of gold, or alternatively, the devaluation of the dollar relative to gold. So what finally killed off this Bretton Woods system at the start of the 70s then? Why did the US throw it in the bin? Ultimately, it was about having enough gold to back the amount of money that was out there. So there's a nice quote from Lyndon Johnson, the US president, who said, the world's supply of gold is insufficient to make the present system workable, particularly as the use of the dollar as a reserve currency is essential to create the required international liquidity to sustain world trade and growth. And you had to have the agreements to shift all the gold around, which I think at the time were under some stress. So, for example, West Germany was a bit reluctant to agree to hold dollars instead of gold. So, you know, for everything to work smoothly, you had to have people who were willing to play this game. Fort Knox was going to be emptied, was it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so in the early 70s, Nixon ended Bretton Woods effectively and took us into the era of fiat money, which we all know and love. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.